What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right. What's up and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today I am joined by Darren Tuttle. Darren, thanks for joining me, man. Hey, Thomas. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, man. I'm excited for this one. We're going to get into all of the weeds of investing, um, but let's kind of start off with, you know, why are you the right person to bring on to talk about investing? Uh, You know, that's a good question. (laughs) Uh, You know, I've been doing portfolio management and investment management for over the last decade. I got my start at Goldman Sachs and capital markets. From there, really uh, I found an alignment with the RIA space, um, independent investment advisory, and uh, have actually gone independent uh, on my own back in May of 2021 and uh, been managing investment portfolios successfully for the last decade. So you work with clients directly, but also with other advisors, right? That's right. I have uh, I type a hybrid approach uh, for that model. So I advise other advisors, about four different advisory firms, about 20 different advisors that, uh, you know, we build model portfolios for them, make security selections. And then I also have, uh, you know, my own high net worth clients, uh, just a you know, few select families that I work with to develop bespoke investment portfolios for them. Nice. Um... Pretty good background, honestly. So we'll we'll give you that as your check mark and vet for what makes you good to talk about investing. Um, but today we're just gonna kind of jump all over the place. I think I'm gonna ask questions that like people have been asking me. Um, I'm also gonna ask questions of like things that I'm curious about. And um I, I feel like one of the first ones I never really talk about is just like, what do you feel about the state of like investing as a whole right now? Like I just see so many people on Twitter, and you know, this is all the predictions about like, this is the highest predicted recession of all time. And to me, it's kind of just like noise, especially because of who I work with, right? Like I get the state of the economy and, you know, what the market's going to do in the next one to two years is way different for, Hey, I'm retiring next year or the following year, or, Hey, I'm in retirement. How does that affect what I can draw out this year? But for me with 30 year olds, it's kind of like, just noise really, right? Like it, it doesn't actually matter what the prices are today, but I'm still curious to hear like how you think about it right now. Yeah. I mean, I think like the name of your podcast, right? The long game is kind of puts uh, things into a good perspective, right? So investing is different from gambling, number one. And so having that long-term perspective, especially with a younger generation, is is something that I think needs to be uh, you know emphasized more often than not. Uh, you know, as I talk to different investors, there's a whole gambit of experience, right? You have people who are just starting and getting into the market, you know, for the first time, or you have people that have been investing, you know, successfully for the last 10, 20, 30 years. And so understanding where somebody's coming from usually depends on, you know, their level of experience and, and the, having that long-term approach. 
So, but how do you, like, what do you, what do you feel like the market's telling you right now? Yeah. So most people will come to me and say like, Hey, should I start investing into the market today? And I said, you know, no, you should have been investing yesterday. Right. So if somebody is always hesitant to, you know, get into the market at the right time, they're always going to be missing, you know, that opportunity. There's never the, the perfect time to get into the market. The perfect time to get in the market was actually yesterday because then you have that power of compounding and you have that power of time to be able to work for you. Um, if you're, you know, in the later years of retirement, maybe you have five years to retire, three years, two years to retire, uh, the market can still definitely work for you right now, especially because interest rates are rising, right? So we're looking at five or 6% yields on short-term US T-bills, which just was not existent, you know, five, six years ago. And so getting into the market may not look the same for each person, but I do think that an investment allocation does make sense for pretty much everybody. Yeah, I, I think it's just a mindset shift. I think way too many people view investing as like, okay, you know, it's 4,000 now, I got to weigh down to 3,500. And then hopefully in a year, it's going to be 4,500. And it's like, you're thinking of things wrong, right? Like if you're focused on one year returns, you you realize that that's not actually where real money is made, right? Like you look at a compounding schedule, it's like, okay, hey, 30 years from now, that's the compounding that matters. Like this one year returns are not. And it's like, you know, I, I almost try to equate it. Like, let's say you're going to buy just a single asset. It doesn't matter what this asset is. And your thought is, in retirement, it's going to be worth $5 million. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to live off my retirement, right? Whether that price today is, you know, 200 or 300 or 400, like it slightly matters, but, but not that much. And then you go five years from now. And if you bought it at 400 today and it's down at 300, but you still think it's going to hit that dollar amount you want in the long run, it also doesn't matter. Like people view it like you're supposed to be in and out and in and out. When in all reality, it's like what happens in the middle of that end result truly doesn't matter as long as you're on track for that end result. And I just don't think that's something that people understand, especially young people. Yeah, I, I like to uh, think of the analogy of the house, right? It's like if you buy a house and you know now that we have Zillow, you can check your home price like every day but it's not like you are actually going to turn around and sell your home every day, right? It may be comforting or you may tie your emotions to like what you check on your Zillow price. But if you really put things into perspective, you know, if your home is, you know, something that you think over the long term could appreciate, then those daily prices on Zillow don't really matter. Yeah. I, I almost think the in, the individual business is one of the, the best ways to explain this. So like I have a client who um, their goal is to sell in about 10 years for 10 million, right? And sometimes we'll be focusing on this year and they're like, oh, like our EBITDA is going to look worse, which is going to affect our valuations. I'm like, but it's not, right? Like you're hiring, you're scaling, you're doing the right thing. So for at this end time, you can sell for 10 million. Nobody's going to look back and say six years before the sale, your EBITDA was low, which is going to affect our multiple here because the story is going to tell us the growth, right? And so if somebody only viewed based on higher low based on that year, you'd be like, okay, let's sell the business this year because it's going down. I don't want it to go down more. And you're like, no, you're actually setting it up for this result. Like too many people are focused in on the short term versus what best aligns you for the long term. 
And I think that's the difference between a good investor and a bad investor is patience. It's long-term mindset. You know, you, we've seen all those studies of like the little kids with the marshmallows, right? Like you can either have one marshmallow now or you wait 15 minutes and you have two marshmallows. And it's like almost all humans are wired to not be able to wait that 15 minutes. But like everybody talks about what, what happens in the market. And when you win in the market is like the patient win because the people who aren't are constantly selling in and out and they're passing it on to people who are patient enough to hold on for the long term. Uh, yeah, no, I, I like that. I couldn't agree more. So uh, I'm curious, what is, how do you view investing? Well, actually, let, we'll go a second. So a lot of advisors talk about investing only in index funds. And I, I don't know my stance yet on this. Like, I don't believe everybody should all be in index funds because I think you miss out on a huge behavioral side of like, I want to own companies I want. But then you also flip and say like, okay, great. You own the S&P 500. You already own like a good allocation to Apple and some of these big companies. But do you subscribe to everybody should have index funds? Everybody should not have index funds and only have individual stocks. Like, where is your viewpoint on this? Um, so I, you know, I'm going to give that like typical consultant answer that says it depends. Yeah. Uh, so I think for me, when I think about investing, I think of it kind of in a bucket, a three bucket strategy. So the first bucket is investing in what you know, right? If you're a business owner, you're investing in that business because that's what you know you're the expert in. That's where you're bringing the money, right? That's number one. Number two is having a globally diversified portfolio. Um, so that bucket typically would include passive investments. You're getting the market return and you know, you're steadily compounding that. You're maybe dollar cost averaging that. And that's you know, your globally diversified portfolio. That's bucket number two. And then bucket number three, I say is more speculative, but also can be used to hedge or protect against downside risk. And that is a bucket that I think you know, would require active management in some degree. Uh, once you've already built up bucket number one and bucket number two, right? And so for me, it's kind of a waterfall approach that once you've built up or accumulated enough assets in this globally diversified portfolio, is there more that you could be doing on the investment side to say manage risk or you know seek like more upside potential? Like definitely. And so that's the, the balance is finding the right mix between each one of those buckets for your individual financial goals. So for, um, I, I totally agree with that. I think bucket one for a lot of people could be empty. Honestly, like when I think about it, a lot of my clients like that don't own a business, I guess maybe some is equity comp, but I, I think a lot of it should be talked about diversifying out of that. I think there's a lot of people that I work with who are like, I know nothing like about the markets. I know nothing that I really care about owning. And sometimes there's like, I want to own Tesla or I want to own Rivian. And it's like, but, but we don't know what you do. Like, I don't, I don't, we're not saying that that's the right answer just because you like the company and, and you believe in that part of it. Sure. If you need to own it, like we can build that in your portfolio, but I think a lot of people wouldn't check one, but do you feel like for higher net worth people, you allocate more to three or less because they're, they've kind of made it. Cause I, I can see both sides, right? Like we've made it. We have so much wealth. We're more in preservation mode. We don't need to risk as much. Or the other side of it is like, we already have such a big bucket. We're already good. We can allocate more towards this. Like, man, this would be awesome if this blows up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think it's um, about diversifying your income streams, right? And diversifying your risk. If uh, all of, you know, your, like for the first bucket too, it doesn't have to just be uh, like your business. It could also be, 
like let's say you're you're like you know really educated so you're going to invest in your education some more right um so there's like other aspects with bucket number one of like investing in what you know and what you're really passionate about um for bucket number three right uh like things like tesla or rivian um a lot of people think of those as kind of lottery tickets right and lottery tickets are fine you just need to be able to understand the risk and return for those and typically what most novice investors get wrong is just based on position sizing right so instead of having maybe a 40 percent allocation into tesla or rivian let's look at you know maybe having 10 or 20 percent uh you know and scaling back those uh say lottery ticket sizes with a more uh you know acceptable risk and return spectrum um for you know i've I've managed a lot of different clients and, uh, you know, with Tesla being one of those, and um, I've always looked at it as dessert, right? So you're not just going to like sit down for dinner and eat a whole chocolate cake. That's like what investing hundred percent of your stock is in Tesla would be right. Um, maybe you have just like a, a side portion of that at the end of the meal and uh, you scale that appropriately uh, to, you know, adjust for your uh, overall financial goals. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what about you? You talked about the globally diversified portfolio. And this is my belief. And like, I've tried to follow, honestly, like, I think people guess, right? Like people are like, okay, hey, size of the market. Like, I think some people go size of the market, right? So then it's like, you know, if you have no bonds, you're almost in like the 35 to 38% international, a bunch in US, and then you split it between large cap, small cap, et cetera. I have a lot of people try to argue with me that like you, you shouldn't have global diversification, that like you get that through US companies. Um, and then I have other people who just like pick percentages, right? They just pick 20 or they just pick 15. And I just kind of struggle with it, right? Like, I think the size of the market seems to make sense if you're going to allocate a portion. Otherwise, you're legitimately just guessing. And then people are like, well, you know, the ones that have it like, well, I'm hedging against what if there's a, a period of time where the US doesn't do as well and international does better. And then other people are like, well, you know, either way, you're going to end up better off because there's less times that international do better. And it's like, but that's also just based on history, the past, right? That That is not at all what the future could be. And it's and if you're not doing size of the market, it all feels just like some big guess. Yeah, I think it kind of comes back to my CFA uh, right curriculum, and they really uh, focus in on different implicit bias that investors have. And one of those is a home country bias. So as a U.S. investor, we have the bias that we want to invest in U.S. companies. But the same thing happens like if you're in Japan, right? If you talk to a Japanese investor, like over 60% of their portfolio is in Japanese stocks. And I think, you know, that that home country bias and like the source of global revenues uh, is all like one aspect of it. The other is like different tax regimes, right? So in Europe, they tax differently than in the US. And then there's also like different currency conversions, right? So when the US dollar, you know, peaks to like 30 year highs, that's going to have a different impact for U.S. companies and, and different imports and exports as it does to European companies or Latin American companies or, uh, you know, companies over in China, right? So those are two other aspects that I think in a globally diversified portfolio, um, you probably don't really think about at first glance is different tax regimes, 
um, which may be more favorable or less favorable than the US and also currency conversions, which may be more favorable or less favorable to people outside of the US. So how do you think about the percentages though? Yeah, so um, it's tough because international has really uh, underperformed relative to the US companies for such a long time. I've been a big proponent of allocating to international. Um, I like to stay away from, uh, you know, like a blanket percentage uh, for each one of them. But, um, you know, I tend to have more into emerging market uh, countries than, you know, the typical advisor would have. And then also I, I tend to stay away from like state owned enterprises. So those that are like pretty much extensions of like the national uh, country that, that you're invested in. Um, but, you know, if you just look at like the global market cap, the U.S. is probably around 65, 68% um, of that. And then international makes up the rest. Uh, we tend to probably stay within those guidelines, but then uh, change things up relative to those state-owned enterprises and increasing uh, emerging markets to a higher allocation, say even yeah. 10 or 15%. Yeah, I normally do 8 to 10 in emerging markets right now on the higher risk pro portfolio but you're i mean if you look at predictions even though we know predictions are wrong every prediction i've seen over the for the next decade is emerging markets with the highest return by expected of like two percent and i've always had emerging markets and I, I think that's one of the most overlooked areas like when a client comes in i've almost never seen somebody have emerging markets in their portfolio i i guess specifically like they they're still going to own like total international stock market maybe a lot don't i guess but they're still going to, that means they're going to be a low allocation to emerging markets. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So, you know, I have over 130 different model portfolios that advisors have brought to me or accumulated over the years. And almost all of them have, you know, an under allocation to emerging markets based on the global market cap. Yeah. What do you think is like um, one of the most overlooked parts of investing for people who self-manage like before they come into you like what do you think that most people are missing um so i think i call it the fund frankenstein right so if you've been investing for longer than say three or four years you've probably accumulated over time these positions that maybe were made sense when you initially started buying into them, but haven't really been uh, thoughtfully, you know, reevaluated now that, you know, three or five years later. And so just like how Frankenstein kind of gets piecemealed together with different arms and, and different legs, especially in taxable accounts where they're afraid of capital gains or realizing capital gains, um, I tend to see like disjointed or disconnected portfolios um, that, you know, overall don't really make sense with what they're claiming that they say they are, whether risk averse or, you know, I'm, I risk taking, but, but then you look at their portfolio and it looks like kind of, it's been piecemealed together over time. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, it's so interesting having people come in. Like I, I, uh, I'm working on a client case right now who he came in with this, I don't even know if it's called like the butterfly portfolio or some idea where it was basically like 25% US stock market, 25% small cap, 25% gold, 25%
bonds or something like that. It was actually, no, it was, there was five of them and it was short-term treasuries, long-term treasuries, gold was 60% of the portfolio. And um, he thought that kind of liked it, but changed it. So then he like changed his portfolio to be like slightly different. I was like, if you're going to, if you're going to believe in an approach, you can't just change 20% of the allocation and then think the research still exists. And I think that's something that I see often is people find these books or they find this research and then they fine tune it and they change it to them without any other re research at all. And they just assume that like, okay, now I slightly made this better. And so then I'm, I struggle sometimes like, okay, let me help educate you on why I don't think that's a good portfolio. And like, I just also think if you have 60% between gold and uh, treasuries, like you're going to be in a tough spot, but a lot of people have these like really deep rooted investment beliefs and it's really hard to get people to push away from them. Like, I feel like that's been one of the hardest parts for me is I have a bunch of people who come in with no investment thesis or belief at all. And it's super easy. And then I have some people who come in and they're so rooted in what they do, even though it's like, I would never recommend it to anybody. Like, how do you approach those type of conversations and educate people on like, Hey, this book might sound good, but here's why I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. Like one of them is like let's let's create a pathway that actually gets to the goals that you're looking to achieve, right? So maybe that sixty percent treasuries, you know, even though we went through this incredible interest rate hiking cycle, maybe it's maybe it is positioned in the right way that to meet his financial goals in the future. Not saying it would be right, but just like hypothetically speaking, um, sometimes it doesn't really matter uh, like what you say in terms of education. Um, sometimes we just go to, uh, adapting, right. And rather than, uh, try to like cure or prescribe like a treatment, uh, that somebody should do, we say, okay, you can do that, but let's do it in the confines of, of this, this, and this. And, uh, that's where we have this investment policy statement that kind of sets guardrails for, uh, how much they're going to allocate to that portfolio, uh, what that tax uh, impact is going to be for them. And then um, usually an adoption approach of saying like, okay, you can have that portfolio. It's going to be, you know, X amount. And then we're going to have this portfolio over here and it's going to have this amount. And so even though it does add like another layer of complexity, I think psychologically for a lot of investors, rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater, we're sticking with something that they feel comfortable with that keeps them in the market and they're able to participate, you know, in that long-term appreciation. Yeah. I think that is the big thing is like, you got to believe in it. If you don't believe in it, you're not going to ride through the downturns. And so like, you're better off having a less optimal portfolio, believe in that you're going to stick with and the most optimal one that you're going to sell every single time that the market declines. And that's where I've kind of found myself in this whole boat is like, you got to meet people in the middle, even if it isn't the best and accept it. You know, that's life. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's true. Um, how do you think about uh, tax location? Like how important is it to you and how do you, how much do you guys try to optimize it? Um, we leverage a lot of software. So there's a lot of good um, software that's out there now that helps you to be able to identify like the best tax optimization strategy for you. One of those is, you know, if you have income producing assets, usually you want to put that in something that's tax deferred, right? Mm -hmm. So that you're not 
paying immediately on those, uh, you know, income gains that you're having. Um, the other is, you know, utilizing tax, uh, uh, you know, free accounts like a Roth IRA, and then also a taxable account. So as an active manager, usually I'm in the space of the taxable account. Um, if we're just talking about those buckets, right, that third bucket, the more speculative or growth or hedging strategy usually falls in that taxable bucket. And, you know, from there, tax is always like top of mind. We're always looking at emphasizing long-term capital gains over short-term capital gains. If there is going to be a capital uh, distribution, is there something to offset it? What kind of dividends are coming out? Are they ordinary, qualified, section 199A, right? Like there's a whole bunch of different things that you can do within the taxable account specifically to, because taxes is one of those biggest ex expenses that you have with investing. Yeah, I, I think for the people that don't know, like there is, everybody says asset allocation, which is like how, how you want your portfolio made up. But a lot of people don't understand that asset location is, I don't, maybe not as important as allocation, but it's still super important. And so all it means is like, where do you put different asset classes or investments and what's going to lead to the, the least amount of taxes incurred? And so like, I guess in theory, your active management account if it worked, would love to be in your Roth. In all seriousness, like your highest appreciating assets and no trade, like no taxes for trading. But in all reality, most people don't have enough in Roth accounts versus most of their money is going to be in a taxable account. So like how I view it is lowest appreciating assets and biggest tax drag in tax deferred. So that's your bonds, mostly bonds, I would say like in what confuses people is like, you should view your entire portfolio in one. So if you're going to have 20% of your portfolio be bonds, but that's 80% of your 401k, a lot of times that's what we'll do because that's the most optimal route. It feels weird because your 401k is going to be growing slower, but a lot of people view my Roth is a portfolio. My taxable is a portfolio. My 401k is a portfolio all separately, all managed differently versus like no, this is one portfolio optimized in locations with the right things in each one um, based on taxes. And so then we go to, okay, tax-free, I want my highest appreciating assets, right? We want to grow, no more taxes on it, great. And then taxable, um, I would mostly say most tax efficient. So like, you know, a lot of those market-based ETFs, uh, things that are not going to have a lot of gains, but that never works out exactly like those three. Like in a perfect world, that's what it would be. But then a lot of times you're like, okay, my 401k isn't big enough to have all my bonds there. So now where's the best place to go? Well, you know, sometimes you're just gonna have to suck it up and it's gonna be in your taxable account. One, because there isn't enough room. And two, because you might need some of that money sooner. And so you need a place to sell from that isn't the highest appreciating assets. And then sometimes it's like, uh, you don't have enough Roth money to do all your individual securities. And those are still a good spot for those are still your taxable account, but you really do have to think through the three and understand that it isn't like one perfect world that you're going to, you're going to do the best you can, but there are going to be some things that would be better somewhere else. You just don't have the dollars in the right accounts to do it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think you've laid it that, that out uh, pretty great. And um, you know, the other thing is we're talking about like initial buying, right. Buying into the market. And the yeah. hope is, uh, and if, you know, I've talked to my investor base the right way, they're not just buying once into the market. You know, they're going to be buying into the market at multiple stages as they continue, continue to invest over time. And so most of the time, it's not like there's a question of, hey, where does this next one incremental dollar come into? 
Um, usually it's, you know, buying these in different portions over time and building up, you know, the tax deferred, accumulating into the tax-free and accumulating into the, the taxable account. And so the more times we have that bat, the better chance we have to hit a home run. How do you feel about rebalancing? I, I, uh, I read something the other day, like I rebalance, but I read something the other day about the power of not rebalancing. <laughs> and like, I've seen the research of better returns by rebalancing because of volatility and less drawdowns. Cause in all likelihood, like if you had an 80, 20 portfolio, it's going to all of a sudden be 95, five or 90, 10, if you're not rebalancing. But then I read this whole article about like, Technically, that like a lot of times non-rebalancing works better because those highest appreciating, appreciating assets, you just end up having higher allocations to. Um, so I'm curious your thought. Yeah. So there's kind of, I think you're mentioning like two different approaches. One of those is calendar-based rebalancing. So you're rebalancing on, you know, maybe a quarterly schedule. So four times a year, you rebalance the portfolio back to say a 60-40. Um, I've done that approach and manage portfolios in that way, but that's not how I would prefer to manage approach uh, uh, portfolios. I tend to um, have a, a range bound uh, across different asset classes based on different target like volatility drift, levels. If it like drifts ten percent or something. Uh, yeah. So um, the the best way to put it is like. If you want to let your winners run, then they need to have a wider rebalancing range than if you have, uh, say, your bonds. So, for example, the emerging market stocks, we would maybe set a wider range bound level of that between, you know, 20% on the upside and 20% on the downside before we actually trigger a rebalance for it. Uh, as opposed to bonds, if we had bonds, you know, that were moving 20 to 20% either way, you know, that just doesn't make sense for what you're targeting within the portfolio. So you would have a much tighter band on the fixed income side of things and let, you know, emerging markets or, you know, gold or commodities or some other asset class have a wider range bound that doesn't actually trigger a rebalance until you hit those different levels. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I think of it. And like Altruist, you can set the drift way versus like time. And to me, that makes a lot of more, a lot of sense. Cause it, especially if you think about like a lot of people believe in momentum, right? Like, and I know that's a lot of times to individual stocks, but it's kind of the idea that like, as things are in momentum, they, they stay that way. And so I think if you're rebalancing too often, a lot of times you're going to be cutting off that period of time where that's really what's rallying. Oh yeah, no. And I think one of the things, that's a byproduct of the trigger-based rebalancing is you typically rebalance less often than you would under a calendar rebalancing schedule. Yeah, that makes sense. What is a one investing belief that you have that is different than like what the standard person has? I know that's kind of a deep question, but like, you know, so, like, is there something that you're like, a lot of people get this wrong and I think about this differently. Yeah, I think that one of the things that makes me somewhat different is that I think that current investing in currencies and commodities in the right way is actually less risky than most people think. And, you know, let me put that into more perspective. So if you're able to go long and short commodities, 
um, in a cycle like we are now under an inflationary cycle, that can be a big boost to your portfolio. Commodities have been one of the best performing asset classes over the last two years. Um, a lot of people avoid commodities because of the high volatility, like you mentioned, the, uh, the trend or momentums that you see, like big swings in both directions. Um, and so being able to go long and short commodities can actually be a portfolio enhancer when if you just look at it like individually, you're like, hey, like I, I want to stay away from that. That's too risky. But actually not investing it can actually be more risky than uh, than just uh, avoiding it altogether. Yeah, I haven't messed too much with commodities right now. I also don't feel like I'm much of an active manager, especially because the client base is more financial planning based and a lot of them self-manage and we give them the advice on the assets. But uh, definitely something I'm interested in, especially because my uh, cousin is a, he's a very successful commodities tra trader, had two seats on the Chicago Board of Exchange and became very, very wealthy doing it. Um, so that is actually a really interesting point. Um, okay, what what is what what haven't I asked you that you would really feel like that you want to talk about around investing? Ooh, um, I don't know. I think uh you know it, it, investing overall can be like one of the most rewarding things if you look at it the right way oftentimes you know my job is to help minimize long-term regret and so you can hear stories of uh you know big wins and big losses and i think just you know having the right framework and approach will you know set you up for the right way so it's all about how you think about the market and less of you know exactly what you're you're choosing to invest in do you feel like a lot of people can self-manage their assets? Uh, so I don't manage my own assets. <laughs> uh, you know, I have uh, an advisor and, and why do I have that? Because money can be tied to emotions, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think like at the end of the day, I'm a big believer in having, you know, experts and, and third-party people that I trust. And, and so I recommend the same for, for everybody because money can be so tied to sure. emotions. Definitely. Okay. A couple last questions. How do you, what, do you like gold as an investment? I'm curious of this. I haven't ever asked anybody, but like, I hear so many young people talk about it. Um, I'm curious. Yeah. So there's like nine different ways of actually investing in gold. Um, yeah. Whether you're like stashing gold coins under your pocket or like buying gold bars and storing them in a safe. Um, I've seen it all, right? Um, there's uh, ETFs that will buy just gold companies. There's ETFs that will buy gold futures or the uh, speculate on the future price of gold. But then there's ETFs that actually buy like the physical gold as a certificate. Um, so each one of those has like its own pros and cons. So that's number one, when we talk about gold, um, the, the, if I do allocate to gold, one of those that I like the most is an ETF that's actually backed by a physical trust that can like, uh, actually like one for one account for the dollar value of the ETF and the amount of gold that they have in that trust reserve. So that's number one. Um, number two is I think, uh, sovereign nations, right? Like Russia's gold reserve or China's gold reserve or Jamaica's gold reserve, uh, are the largest institutional buyers of gold. And so 
when they start buying up large amounts of gold, that's where it's a great time to invest in gold because there's this large institutional demand for it. Um, we hadn't got that uh, in like big ways until March of 2020. Um, and we have seen, you know, different sovereign nations start to accumulate more gold. Uh, it doesn't pay a dividend. So it's, it's more of that store of value. Um, but I think it's really dependent on, you know, other countries, including the U.S. And, and how much they're deciding to keep in reserves, which is one of the reasons why you have to really kind of be attuned to the gold market and how much is actually being bought in um, large quantities from those big institutions. And it's not so much at like a set and forget it, in my, in my opinion, as an mm. asset class. So it's more of like a trade in and trade out at the right times. Yep. It's like a trade in and trade out as part of a broader commodities allocation with like silver or, you know, platinum or copper okay. or, or all of those. Like, I think, you know, precious metals in general, I, you know, I think give you more flexibility than just having that allocation to gold. I was just going to ask where, where from the global allocation does that come from? Um, so it, it, like in a portfolio, like in an individual person's portfolio, do you pull that from bonds? Do you pull it from somewhere different or does like most portfolios have an allocation to precious metals? So since 2018, I've been pulling, um, a precious metals or commodities allocation from the fixed income side, because we had the belief that, Hey, we were at rough bottom interest rates. And now, you know, the interest rates are where they are. We kind of saw that, but now that we're at a higher interest rate environment, I would probably start pulling it from the equity allocation side if I was going to, you know, add another incremental dollar tomorrow into precious metals. I would probably be taking it from the equity side now that we're at, you know, a, a higher um, interest rate environment. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Do you think Bitcoin's better gold? Uh, you think? Uh, do I think Bitcoin's better than gold? Better gold? Is it better gold? Is not it better than gold? Better gold. As a store of value. Um, hmm. I would probably say, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like. That's my thesis. I think, I, I just am curious. I don't think everybody should invest in Bitcoin. I don't push anybody to do anything like that. But in my viewpoint, the reason why I invest in Bitcoin is because I think in its most basic form, it's better gold. And so if you just look at market cap differences, you're like, hmm, Okay. That seems like a pretty, to me, asymmetric risk of like bottom to zero, what the market cap would be to be gold. Obviously, that's not part of my 80% globally diversified portfolio. For a portfolio, That's the part of the side where you can maybe take more risk, like you said. That's like one of the big things that I believe in. I might be wrong. I, I don't plan my retirement on it. I don't plan any other goals on it. But it's a thesis that I have. And every time somebody brings up gold to me, I'm like, well, what do you think of Bitcoin? They're like, well, I don't really know about it. I'm like, well, everything you like about gold is what everybody likes about Bitcoin. And it, so I'm always curious to hear people's thoughts on it. Yeah, I think in terms of like transferring, uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin and um, like being able to buy and sell and have it in cold storage. And there's just a lot of aspects, I think, with Bitcoin that make it advantageous for somebody that wants to keep like a store of value. I think, you know, if you look at Bitcoin over a long term uh, perspective, like 
I think the world's just becoming more digitally connected, not less. Um, and so, you know, if like the, the doomsdayers, right, like want to have physical gold, like gold bars in the event that, you know, everything goes kaput and you can like trade or barter a, a gold bar for something, right? Like, but at the end of the day, like if you're getting to that point, your portfolio is probably like the least of your worries uh, then. So I think like as a store of value, I think that Bitcoin does have like easier transferability than gold and, uh, and definitely makes a lot of sense the way you put it. And completely fixed supply. Like gold, technically, you never know if that asteroid in the space that comes and we're able to bring down the gold and now we double the supply. Obviously, I don't think that's going to happen, but I'm just saying like, it is interesting to have a true finite supply. Yeah, yeah, that uh, 30,000 or whatever cap. 20, 21 million. Uh, 21 million, there you go. There you go. Um, okay, cool, man. Any last closing thoughts that you have before we wrap up? Um, no, I mean, I, I uh, appreciate you having me come on here and just talk a little bit. I don't know how insightful I was, but... Um, no, I think it was awesome. We, we honestly, being not, I think that too heavily focused on investments is not my main focus, especially because it's what everybody thinks about as it relates to... Actually, I have one more question. What do you think of dividend investing? And that's a kind of a loaded question. And I don't mean it in the way of like, of course you like dividends, right? Like, of course we like the VOO or like, you know, all of the standards pay dividends. But what do you think of like the whole new wave of like all everybody talks about is the dividend yield that they're getting from X investment. And it's just like the list of the top dividend stocks. Yeah, I'd say that only investing in dividend investing is a risky strategy. Uh, companies can cut their dividends. And That's what I don't get either. People forget the fact that like that could next year be zero. Like it easily could. That's that's not something that. Yeah. You're, so you're like for sure no. It's not, yeah. it's not like a bond. Yeah. So I used to um, work for an RIA that was a cross border wealth management firm. So we managed half a billion between the U.S. and Canada. And uh, in Canada, if you think dividend investing is popular down here in the U.S., just go up to Canada. Um, they love dividend investing. But one of the reasons is uh, because they get, you know, advantageous tax treatment for their dividends, a lower tax rate. Um, but you end up getting really concentrated in just a few companies. And like, like I said, I think it's you know, more risky than um, just like having a diversified basket. So, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of just having like that dividend thematic investing. I think it's too narrow of a focus for you and, and it opens you up to a lot of risk. Yeah. Um, going forward, uh, I do think that a lot of the stock buybacks that have happened in the US are becoming disincentivized because of different tax uh, you know, uh, acts that have been passed. And so buybacks may not be as attractive as actually paying a dividend. So I love when a company decides to pay a dividend um, let's have more companies uh, pay dividends so that, you know, a dividend uh, focused investment portfolio doesn't have to focus on, you know, the top 100 stocks, it can actually be 500. And let's incentivize, you know, management to start paying out more dividends to shareholders. I like that. Super well explained. All right, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Where are the best places uh, everybody can follow you? Yeah. Um, so you got my website, uh, www.tuttle.com ventures.com that's t-u-t-t-l-e 
Um, I also have a, a Substack, so that's a newsletter uh, tuttleventures.com. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter. So I'm at uh, Darren, D-A-R-I-N underscore T-8-0. Um, nice. All right, perfect, man. Well, thanks for coming on, sharing a lot of your expertise. And everybody, thank you for listening. Please rate, subscribe, and tune back in next week. All right, see you guys.